I got you, man. Is this recording? Yeah, uh, as as everybody knows, every episode of the Antifada is sponsored by another company, and today it's for Zin Cinnamon Nicotine Pouches. Another legal but should not be legal uh, concentration of a substance. So yeah. we usually do Kratom yeah. uh, or Vape. Mm-hmm. Now we're doing... Back in Zine. our day, we had Zines. Zines, but now, right. Now it's been replaced be by Zines. There'd be a rack Zine. of Zines down yeah. at the bodega, but now there's a rack of Zines. <laughs> right. You used to be able to go to any bodega from Rigo Park... To the Bronx. It had and Comet Bus be- <laughs> and Burn Collector and Maximum Rock and Roll. All your local Yeah, zines. definitely Regal Park is not good for <laughs> DIY. Yeah, DIY or die, baby. You want to try one of these zines? No, I'm okay. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. it's like a, I that- had to break up a, a vaporing at my school. So. Oh, okay. Break up a vaporing? Yeah, we smuggling a- them in from overseas? Yeah, yeah. We had a 12-year-old who thought it was a really great idea to meet someone on the internet oh. and take a bus across the city and meet this guy under a bridge and buy really cheap vates and then sell them to our kids. Holy shit. Oh, no. Yeah, man, the 12-year-olds. So it's not even, it. so it's an even sketchier vape than even yeah. the legal vape. Oh yeah, my absolutely. I was like less concerned about the vape and more like, wow, you met somebody weird at 12 on the internet. Yeah. Maybe that's a bad thing. That's a very bad thing. Yeah. And who is the creepazoid meeting a kid under a bridge, a 12-year-old under yeah, the bridge at I mean, any hour for yeah. any reason? Absolutely. Not yeah. good. Not good. You probably didn't know he was 12. Yeah, yeah. probably not. It was like his handle was, was Mr. Adult Businessman 68 <laughs> yeah. at yeah. gmail.com. Right. <laughs> Anyways. Uh, Are the kids in your school also really into Takis? <laughs> yeah. I mean, as spicier, the better. There, we had the, the like one chip challenge thing for a while. I don't remember what it's called. But it's that like you buy one chip and it's like 10 bucks on the internet because what? no. Is this news to you all? Yes. Oh, oh wow. I really? Okay. I am an elderly person. You I know the kids like Takis, things. but I didn't know there was Okay. So there's chip. this. So it was a fad for a while. It was on the internet. It was literally like, what is it? Ghost peppers, like a bunch mm-hmm. of ghost peppers. No store would sell them because of the liability. Mm. So kids would get on the internet and buy them and then take like a tiny bite and then like throw up and like, uh, it was a real problem. Run around. They'd get it in their eye and then they couldn't see. And then they would like give it to other. Yes, they were. It was exactly like they were tear gassing themselves and they had to drink milk in the nurse's office. These are proletarian (laughs) heroes of the future. They're getting themselves prepared to face the cops now. I mean, they, they did also, I did have my students like basically rioted in our school this year over our horrible assistant principal. My students are awesome. You have probably the most based fucking school of all time. That's the kids are doing illegal activities. They're getting ready to defeat the police in hand-to-hand combat. They're taking down the assistant principal. What aren't they doing? Uh, well, their homework. homework. Yeah, exactly. yeah, reading, Learning, reading. <laughs> Which I do want them to do at some point. I'm like, please learn to read. It might be important to you. Like, do all, learn to read so you can have a better strategy about how you attack my assistant you principal. Should, <laughs> uh, you should hold up the Count of Monte Cristo and say, "You want to try something spicy? Check this out." <laughs> no, hand up the whole this book and be like, "Wait, don't read this yet. <laughs> this won't make any sense." All right, we're here with Amelia Cates and Louis. Brennan, uh, our friends from Portland, Oregon, Hello. and we're going to be talking about some stuff in Portland, and we're going to be talking about a new book called A Brilliant Red Thread, The Revolutionary Writings of Don Hammerquist. So we'll be talking about some contemporary stuff. We'll be talking about Don Hammerquist and who he is and uh, why you put out this book and what we can learn from it. And then maybe in the bonus, we'll talk a little bit about the 2020 Black Blocks and the Youth Liberation Front and what that was like because that'll be 
That'll be a spicy chip for mm-hmm. everybody. Love spicy chip. <laughs> and maybe your your kids will lead it. Yeah, possibly. We can on get them the on, front the, on the phone. Yeah. yeah, they don't wear black block, though. They just do their shit <laughs> without masks in, well, on video. You know, all sorts of shit from the 90s is back. You yeah, know, wearing like new metal and wearing big Jenko pants. So maybe yeah. we can bring like the spirit of 99 back or something. Right. You know? I just want them to put on a real mask when they do shit. Mm. That'd be my one ask. <laughs> you can pass out some masks. In class. <laughs> well, speaking of organizing, Luis, you're an organizer with the Burgerville Union, mm-hmm. um, which it seems to be like one of the more uh, successful independent union campaigns uh, of the last few years. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Because last episode we were talking about the National Labor Relations Board and how fucked it is. And yeah. you kind of found a way or you experimented with organizing outside of that. Yeah, I mean, the Burgerville Workers Union is uh, a union of uh, five stores of a local burger chain, a fast food chain in Oregon and Southwest Washington. And uh, we've been public since 2016. We were organizing a little before then. And uh, we have a contract, I think, because there's been all this fast food organizing recently. And I, I'm glad that people are including Starbucks in that, because why not? Um, and... I think we still are the only one with a contract, or our contract just expired, but we did get a contract, um, but it took maybe s- seven years or something. Well, I don't even know how, remember how long it took. Um, vast swaths of your life. The vast swaths of my life. I worked at the airport Burgerville for a very long time, and my shift started at between 5 and 5.30 usually, oh. depending on when I got there. And uh, yeah, so um, we've been fighting... Um, for you know, basic union stuff, but we've also been trying to have a militant edge to it. We launched um, without a clear contract-based strategy. Um, we were just a union, and we were demanding stuff. Um, and we took a lot of action, have done a lot of pickets, a lot of strikes, uh, a lot of community solidarity stuff. And uh, we started winning NLRB elections, I think, in 2014. I might got my dates wrong, but uh, we won five. And uh, then we were off to the bargaining phase of things and did many strikes and many pickets. And uh, our uh, first contract expired on August, uh, April 31st. Um, so we had a big picket on May Day to celebrate uh, the season of struggle back back on. Uh, and we've been uh, we've been rebuilding. I mean, there's a lot to say. It's been a lot. It's a long experience. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, I think it's uh I think it's been in locally an inspiration, and I think at various points nationally, people who are on listening to the show might know about it. And, uh, and I saw that uh, you and uh, or the union and uh, a friend of the show, Rax King, have something in common mm. that they both uh, won a James Beard Award. <laughs> <laughs> the James Beard Award-winning uh, Burgerville Union, the Golden Beard. Yeah, we we had a, we had a picket the day of the. Uh, um, the day of the award ceremony, uh, we had a chant. How many James Beard Awards has Burgerville won? <laughs> None. No James Beard Awards. Uh, but we won one. The union won one. Um, yeah, and uh, the uh, at the acceptance uh, ceremony in, in Chicago, I uh, what I heard was that um, uh, my comrade Mark Medina, who was there, uh, gave up and gave a three-minute speech uh, that started with... Uh, uh, I haven't been in a room full of this many employers except for contract negotiations. <laughs> uh, and then everyone sort of politely chuckled and then he spent three minutes tearing apart the company and everyone sort of politely chuckled. Oh, hell yeah. Uh, it's like the Bob Dylan, uh, Thomas Paine award speech. Yeah, it's great. And then, and then we never didn't get mentioned in any of the media reports about the James Beard award. We didn't get listed in any of it. <laughs> so I don't know surprise. if that was a plan or, yeah. or what we were very confused about receiving it. We didn't apply for it. We didn't ask for it. And, wow. uh, 
we're uh must have some friends in the beard foundation yeah well, friends in high places maybe are they just trying to you know do a good pr run right now and make themselves look progressive. Yeah, they're trying to get you in the pocket of big James Exactly, Beard they're trying Award. to get us in the, yeah. in the pocket of, of, of fine dining. They're trying to red know. and black wash themselves. You know, James Beard Award, they, they know that they don't have a lot of friends out there in anarchist and communist circles, and that's the demographic they're shooting for next. Yeah, they're really, they're really trying. <laughs> so if uh, listeners are in the Portland area, I, I've only been to the Burgerville at the airport at PDX, and yeah. I had a veggie burger there, and it was Really good for an airport veggie burger. I'm really happy with I'm that. D- it was deep fried, I'm sure. I, I assume so. Yeah. That's probably um, why it was good. I've uh-huh. never had a burger. That's the burger secret. Before. Deep it, frying it. Yeah. So I guess really? so. I didn't know. <laughs> I was like, you know. That's I, what they say. We used, to, we used to bake mood, them so and then they started deep frying and everyone's like, yeah. You're like, you know, typical in union negotiations. You're like, we got to get these motherfuckers to open the books. You're like, open the books to your recipes, motherfucker. We want to see how these burgers <laughs> no, The workers get made. know that, though. That's the thing. Uh, they don't come p- uh, prepackaged. Oh, I guess, oh, I guess like, they, do, like they do buy that stuff. Yeah, they do buy a lot of that stuff in boxes. But yeah. So, but if listeners are, uh, want to check out the union, can they go to like a Burgerville restaurant and. Sure, and yeah. Yeah, for those in Portland, it's the Convention Center one, the Hawthorne, uh, uh, 82nd and Gleason, 92nd and Powell, and uh, Gladstone down on Milwaukee Boulevard. Is it on Milwaukee or how? What do you I, think of the uh, the Starbucks campaign? They're in that that weird sort of liminal stage right now where they've won what majority and they're waiting for they're in the uh, negotiation stage, right? Working on their first contract. Do you, obviously it's an inspiring thing to see what, what, what's their struggle right now? How is it the same or different from what you faced over the last seven, eight years or so? Yeah. I mean, I, I would say I'm not the expert on what's the nitty gritty of what's going on for them. So, you know, take all my advice with a grain of salt, but I think that, um, what I've seen out of the Starbucks campaign is similar to what I've seen from a lot of uh, sort of more dynamic campaigns is that they went for election very quickly, but it wasn't clear that they were actually ready to take a lot of action. Mm. And so there was this wave of election winning. And the Starbucks I will, Starbucks campaign has done a lot more striking than other things and uh, than other campaigns. And I think that's, that's going well for them. But I'm a little bit nervous about their uh, ties to Workers United and uh, by extension SEIU. I think that mm. the the... In Portland, I think a lot of our success has been because uh, there's been no one to tell us that we're wrong and there's no one to tell us we can't do stuff. And so even when we're doing stuff that's uh, questionable legality mm-hmm. or uh, strategic value, um, it's still our mistake to make. Um, and in the Starbucks campaign, I suspect it's only a matter of time before something happens. I mean, SEIU has this long history of in the last 10 years or so, starting with 5 for 15 and also before that around, around Occupy and stuff, of things that I would call reckless. Mm. And I think that that's been very exciting and it draws a lot of people to it. But um, unless you understand that that window is being opened by an actor with a very different interest in that, that it's gonna, that window is going to get closed at some point. Um, I mean, there's some direct experiences when deeper experiences in Portland around that. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, you know, similarly with this, right? Like there's, um, there's a lot of excitement and a lot of momentum to it, um, but unless people are willing to build a force that's actually independent from that um, larger institutional framework and actually has a trajectory beyond it, then it's just going to get, you know, the door's going to get closed and then, you know, uh, the people who already had the power are going to consolidate their victories. 
So um, I'm gonna, I, I found this Labor Notes article uh, that's like some lessons from Burgerville, but it's pretty basic. Is there something else that people should read about, like if they if they want to check out the Burgerville model for their own organizing? Yeah, I mean, on our website, we have some some level of a, our story, I believe. Um, it's uh, bvwu.iww.org because we are affiliated with the Industrial Workers of the World. Um, and... Uh, I think that there were some articles, uh, you know, interestingly enough, um, I think a lot, some of other, other places have this, but Portland has the North, uh, the Northwest labor press, um, which is a local, uh, newspaper funded by, by unions in the central labor council. And, uh, um, it's online. You can go look at the Northwest labor press and there's a lot of really interesting sort of reporting on, uh, labor minutia for the kind of nerds that might be listening to this. Uh, in there, but I think I wonder. I suspect there's a bunch of other other of those that might be an interesting resource for doing different research. One of the specific uh, historical events uh, that pops up in a, a brilliant red thread, which you edited, uh, what is the uh, the Longview struggle mm-hmm. of 2011? <laughs> one that at the time was really really exciting, and I think showed a level of fight back that we hadn't seen in a while. I remember here on the East Coast, I was hyped about it, but kind of receded from memory. I yeah. feel like for a lot of people, uh, but Don and others were like very much engaged in trying to understand and interact with this militant outpouring from a rank and file uh, ILWU longshore workers who had gotten sick of you know their jobs being threatened by automation, shitty sellout contracts, and so on, and violently we could say opposed uh, capital uh, yeah. and and tra- and. and um, threw up hard pickets and tried to keep scabs out or whatever. I mean, they, let me just jump yeah. in. They did more than throw, did hard pickets, right? They were like dumping over grain trains mm. and uh, stopping trains on train tracks. I mean, it was, I was in Portland when that was happening and were, I was okay. a part of a crew of people at the time that came out of Occupy called Hella 503 and we were doing solidarity work with them. And, um, it was pretty amazing what they were doing, right? Like we hadn't seen in, in Portland in a long time, like that level of militancy that wasn't like connected to maybe to um, like the anti-globalization movement. Um, it's really interesting how that all played out because p- there's like a level in which uh, race plays a central role and how that all kind of fell mm-hmm. apart, especially in um, the Portland I- ILWU and the Seattle ILWU. There are these sort of, two-tiered memberships Mm. and um the casuals right yes and you will be shocked the casuals generally tend to be people of color Mm, surprise and the full members tend to be white folks um and so there was a like don doesn't write about this but there was a um pretty uh significant moment where those of us that are doing solidarity with longview came to seattle to do um an event with some black workers from the ILWU there and some other organizers from the community. Um, and we actually, it turned into a giant brawl oh, man. between the leadership of ILWU local eight in Portland and the leadership of ILWU in Seattle and Longview workers and us. Um, yeah, it was really wild. <laughs> Sounds like it. And uh, you know, because the Longview workers are really pushing the international, like they were really challenging the leadership of the international. They were challenging this sort of like piece around also this sort of two tier membership that was really like dividing the union and not allowing it to kind of like 
reach the militancy that it could in places mm. like Portland and places like Seattle, right? Like we we were at some point doing um, blockades of this Zim ship coming from Israel in Tacoma and ILWU members. Yeah, were, we mentioned that on the show last week. Yeah, we're actively driving through our picket lines and trying to hit us. Oh, These were no. ILWU members, yeah. right? And so like something to think about, right? Like just because folks are in a union and have a level of consciousness doesn't mean, right, that they're always on our side or our allies. But I think that Longview thing was really interesting because it really um, clarified for a lot of us around like the power of like, what what is the heart of like workers resistance and struggle? And how does that lead towards a like revolutionary liberatory horizon? And how does it not get co-opted? I don't know. the in, So I don't know if folks know the end of that struggle was that the international stepped in and took trusteeship mm-hmm. of the local and basically broke the local. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that wasn't the capitalists, that was the leadership of their union, right? And so I think when Luis is kind of talking about, you know, this window that opens with SEIU, which is also another pretty notorious union organization that yeah. shuts down militancy within it, right? Like, I think there is this piece in independent union rights, right? Independent unions right now that's interesting because you don't necessarily have that kind of ingrained leadership that is really a part of the capitalist ruling class in some ways to like step in and uh, really directly take kind of back that uh, leadership from working class people and rank and file in the union. And that really matters. Mm -hmm. Um, That isn't to say that people shouldn't use the resources of big unions because like, especially if you're trying to be a union. So I'm in a teacher's union in Portland. Mm -hmm. Um, And my school's notorious because we always make our teachers union mad because we do pretty uh, pretty militant crazy shit. Well, you've got all those crazy kids with their vapes <laughs> yeah, yeah, and right. their black yeah. blocks and right. all that stuff. I mean, you know, like this, we can talk about the teacher stuff in Portland if we want, but, um, you know, like <clears throat> we have been recuperated at moments by our union leadership mm-hmm. when we've stepped out too far around Black Lives Matter or to support you know, other teachers or to support students that are going through stuff, right? Like our union leadership has stepped in and been like, no, 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 we're not going to do, you're not going to do this action. Like, we're just going to go talk to management for you. Right. And so like, I think that piece, like that long view thing really clearly kind of talks about that, that challenge and limitation in union work. And that's something that Don really points out. And that like when all of that was happening, right? Like, and I think even as Luis was doing Burgerville stuff, there's, a constant conversation with Don about like the real limits of specifically working within the union framework. Mm-hmm. Right. And how and as it, such, not just major unions, but right. within mm-hmm. a, a framework where you're make asking you for demands, you're getting, getting victories and that's how you sort of measure. And your you're work. necessarily signing a contract with a no strike clause yeah. within it. Yeah. I yeah. mean, implicitly in American labor law, it's yeah. in basically any contract. Right. right. So we'll get into some more about your organizing, but why don't we begin with talking about who Don Hammerquist is? Yeah. Um, Don Hammerquist is a veteran of the left in America. He's um, been a revolutionary uh, in some stripe, probably probably since he was born. I mean, his parents were members of the Communist Party. His dad was a wobbly in the um, woods in Washington um, and was a radical even before that. Um, Don uh, started his political career in the Communist Party in the, in the 60s. I think it's actually very interesting to think about um, that what it would mean, what it means to have your experience of the '60s being through the Communist Party as what was at the time sort of the establishment of the left, 
Um, it had just come out of come out from being underground. Um, it was at a moment when you know Soviet power still was. Uh, it was. It made some sense to sort of side with Soviet power. Uh, and I mean, not that it did, but it seemed like it did at the time. Uh, and anyway, so Don Don's first attempt at organizing was to to sort of change change the direction of the CP. So, you know, sort of bore from within and sort of. And what, what years is this? This was in the late sixties and in, uh, leading up to um, sixty seven, sixty eight. So and, his parents were with the CP. Yeah. And then he was with the CP until the late 60s. Yes. Uh, and he broke from the CP. And uh, he tells a story in a little memoir essay in the, in the book um, in uh, uh, early 69. And uh, basically because he realized that the idea of steering the ship and, you know, as we've just been talking about, sort of changing the direction of these big lumbering institutions was a was a losing battle, and it was better to start something with more clarity and 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 freshness. So he helped found an organization called the Sojourner Truth Organization, along with people like Noel Ignatiev and Dave Rainey. Um, and uh, he was an STO and was a main leader in STO for uh, its whole existence as an organization through the various phases of work that the organization did, including workplace organizing and solidarity work with third, third world liberation struggles um, and on the direct action campaigns in the mid 80s. And then into the 90s, um, him and his partner Janine were in Chicago and they became very close friends with the young militant uh, anti-racist, anti-fascist organizing that was happening in the Midwest, particularly folks in Chicago and Detroit and Minneapolis uh, around ARA, um, or folks that eventually became ARA. Um, and they were... Um, yeah, they were uh, political mentors of those folks, and in the I'm sorry, I'm giving Don's life in just a no, it's quick good. spin. Um, and then in the in, in the late '90s, uh, um, actually uh, around around uh, um, 2001, uh, Don and Janine moved to uh, back to rural Washington, where Don grew up. Um, and as Don says, he moved to the woods and then learned how to use a computer. Uh, and uh, classic Northwestern, classic Northwestern, <laughs> classic retired boomer move. I guess he's older than a boomer. Yeah, he's I, our greatest generation, right? probably, right? Yeah, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. But anyway, he, uh, he, um, uh, silent generation, silent. Generation. Oh, interesting. Yeah, between. Oh, yeah, right. right. Silent generation. Yeah. Uh-huh. What well, my 92 year, 91 year old grandfather is too. Uh huh. The silent generation. He wasn't very silent, though. No. Don was silent for a while because he didn't publish for too long. He was mostly nose to the grindstone doing organizing work. That's one of the things that if you read his uh, biography in this and then, of course, subsequent in the book is like really great interventions that he had through the course of the last 20, 25 years or so is you get the sense of like this sort of prototypical American organic intellectual. And Noel is, of course, another one of these as well. This is a, a gentleman who is a red diaper baby, but, um, you know, uh, the son of a, of a logger who was blacklisted for his communist and IWW activities and always worked and kept his notes to the grindstone. That's at one point said the only person who ever collected unemployment, New York state unemployment for being laid off from the communist party, uh, <laughs> USA, which is really impressive, but like he's a type of figure. It seems like there's hundreds and thousands and over the course of the last hundred or so years, hundreds of thousands of these folks who passed through these various different organizations and been able to be there on the ground and learn real lessons and then be able to communicate them out, which is, I think, one of the really great 
points of richness about this book, right? As you really get the sense of what it's like to like to live one's life based on these principles and always be searching and always be questioning, always be ruthlessly critiquing, but also practical activity being sort of grounding all of that in a real organic connection to the class. Yeah. So I should clarify, he has this long history and um, he has this wealth of experience from, you know, better half of the whole 20th century, but he, uh, um, the book really only includes stuff that he written in the last 25 years because it's really focused on this practice he developed of being in close dialogue with younger organizers on the ground. As he's living in the woods on a computer, he's not in the thick of it, so he's really just there for people's advice and, and there to sort of analyze uh, the bigger picture of stuff. Um, and so while he's got this, this, big, uh, this big backstory, the, the content of the book is really about the last 20 years of militant struggle on the American left and um, Don's thoughts on how those could have gone differently or how they were going as they were happening. I mean, these a lot of these are emails, they're blog posts, they're comments on blog posts, you know, that were really in the dialogue in the thick of it, um, not an academic sitting there sort of issuing his decrees on what should happen and not someone who's just reading reading, reflecting on it, and thinking and sort of yelling into the ether, he's talking directly to people yeah. who are doing the organizing. Mm-hmm. And I, I think what's so valuable about this book for uh, for me and for our listeners is because, is, first of all, as a historical resource, because he's talking about the anti-globalization movement, anti-racist, a- anti-racist action, you know, there's a great critique of uh, the Black Bloc when it first pops up, and then into Occupy, Madison and Egypt, uh, the like Take the Square movement type stuff. Um, up until the George Floyd uprising. So we've got, like you said, the last 25 years, a pretty full swath. Uh, and he has this consistent method that, and I, I think th- to me, the, the red thread is this, uh, is tying together the old left and the new left, which is something mm-hmm. we talk a lot about this sh- on the show, which is like, we're not Stalinists or Leninists. We don't really see that kind of uh, like Bolshevik organizing model as particularly relevant today. But it had a certain practical logic mm-hmm. that uh, is was largely forgotten in like the last twenty five years, or you know people you know like Lenin and stuff. But there's not exactly that sort of. There's nothing like STO today. Yeah. There's certainly nothing like the the Leninist organizations of the sixties or fifties. Um, so he's trying to uh, apply what made sense about that stuff um, with each passing moment and trying to. Like you said, like I, th- I think one thing that I was really influential to me is he, he wrote something on a, a three-way fight mm-hmm. um, about the anti-fascist actions in Portland, and he wasn't simply mm-hmm. saying like Antifa is stupid, yeah. stop, you know, fight the system, not you know whatever. He was like, you know, you guys are fighting, and that's great. Um, here's my view of like what fascism really means, and like what it means on a global scale, and what it means in terms of like the capitalist order. And we have to be thinking about this while we think about fighting, you know, the Proud Boys. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's unfortunately not a lot of people are writing like that these days. And so it's, uh, I think it's a good resource in like sort of reminding people how to think politically mm. about these struggles instead of simply dismissing them or saying, you know, we can't be critical right mm-hmm. now. Or simply taking them on wholeheartedly and saying, right. well, you know, right. to actionism or whatever. I mean, I think, uh, as somebody that was in some of the organizations that Don was talking to, um, I mean, to me, one of the things that was really interesting, you're talking about like the legacy of Leninism and he's also like really influenced by Gramsci. Um, right. Like I was coming up as an anarchist and I was like, fuck all this communist shit. And then 
joined Bring the Ruckus and started having conversations with Don. So Don was really talking to a lot of us on the West Coast. There's a, sort of this funny thing in Bring the Ruckus where it's like, I mean, we had a relationship to Noel, but like it really feels like in a lot of ways, like because Noel was on the East Coast and Don is on the West Coast, right? We could like easily have access to, mm. to folks on the same coast as us. And like to me, one of the things about Don that's so interesting is like, I don't think of Don as an anarchist at all. However, I think so much of what he's talking about is so important for people who identify as anarchists. And it was like instrumental in my thinking and challenging, I think, parts of anarchism that um, really aren't, I would say, revolutionary. And, you know, for me, it really made me, I, I, like, I don't really identify as either anymore. Like, I identify as a revolutionary at this point in my life because I'm like, for me, the goal is to, like, have a revolution globally, right, that, that creates a meaningful life for people and a liberated society for people that is not capitalism. Like, that's what matters. That's my goal at the end of the day, right? And I think there's a lot of conversations we have to have about how we get to that and what that looks like, right? And I think Don talks a lot about that and has some specific visions coming out of Leninism that are actually very helpful um, and if, clarifying. If you listen to, to neo-Stalinists, online they talk about how the power of comrade stalin uh was that uh he was in the the golden center of the bolsheviks he was neither too far left nor too far right like he was this solid core standing at the center i think that's bullshit i think what the golden center really is is exactly what you're talking about which is a gentleman here who who I read the uh, the chapter he had talking about how he's still a Leninist, mm-hmm. but his Leninism is a very fascinating one yes. because he's able to tease out the contradictions within Lenin's own thought and practice as time goes on. He uses Leninism as a way to uphold various different organizational and revolutionary principles, mm-hmm. but very much a non-dogmatic. So if you're doing things right, if you're in the true Antifada golden center, that means you get called a uh, dirty commie by the anarchists <laughs> and you get called an anarchist by the by the marxists yeah, that's absolutely. how you know you're doing it right <laughs> and i think that's what he did he did it right yeah i mean i think something about don's writing that's important is that he's not afraid of leadership right but he, he's not interested in a centralized leadership that isn't questioned right like the process of thinking and thinking politically is central for him to being a revolutionary and a political actor. And you cannot act without thinking, right? And he's not like, he's talking about it in a very deep way. Like I, from early conversations with him, I walked away being like, oh my God, I kind of have to understand the nature of like what it is to be human (laughs) and like how we build society to actually really start thinking about what it means to destroy the society we live in and, and be a part of, a new society that like changes what it means to be human in some ways. Right. And like, I think to me that sort of deep thinking, you know, about like what's happening in the moment and how we address that is invaluable. And that came from the conversations we were having with him and him constantly pushing us to be like, are you really understanding what is happening in the context? Mm. Like, what is the horizon that you're aiming for? How, what are the obstacles that are in your way? How is what you're going to do going to create an obstacle? Are you okay with that obstacle that it creates? Then like, how are you going to address that? Right. And like, how does that get you to this vision of a society that you want? Right. And I think 
this piece around like philosophy, like I really think in a lot of ways he's a philosopher, but he's not, he's, he's not an academic. Like something that's important for folks to know is that like a lot of folks from STO went and like became lawyers mm. and they became academics, right? They got cushy jobs. He did not mm. like he lives in the woods in the homestead that his father built. That's very old. <laughs> and like, he doesn't have like a cushy retirement, right? Like he didn't, go into academia on purpose because he was like, I'm a fucking revolutionary. My job is to make revolution in the mm -hmm. world. And that's what I'm going to do. And I, I think especially that's super hard now in some ways um, because cost living, cost of living right now for us is so different. Like STO yeah. mm -hmm. in the height of their day, right? They had one person who would work in a factory and then they'd all live in the house together. And like that one person would work in the mm -hmm. factory and make all the money and then everyone else would organize. And then they would like trade out at certain points. It's like how they did the dialectics course in SEO too, right? Was that they would like have some people work and then like basically give people a like paid vacation off from their working so that they could do I'm, that. Like, I'm going to do one of those, you know, like those memes where it's like the perfect fifties family and it's like, we have to go back. I'm going to do that with like one comrade going out the door of the communal house to the factory yeah. and everybody else like reading marks and right. it being like, we have to go back. We have to return to when a single wage earner could support right. an entire country. Exactly. <laughs> but that, I mean, so the context of that is different, right? But like, I think, the what they were essentially doing, which was like being in collectivity with each other, thinking collectively together, taking the time to do that, but not stopping their activity, like not having it be distance from that, right? Like that's why Don's writing has been so relevant to so many of us that have been engaged in militant activity is because, you know, he is not sort of in this distant ivy, ivory tower, right? Like Lou was talking about, he's like, you know, we're on, we're on phone calls with him. I'm like, Hey, I'm at, <laughs> here I am at Occupy. Let's, we're getting on the phone and having this conversation about whatever. Right. Um, and that is a really different sort of conversation between people. Um, and I think that that practicality, you know, the book is, it's sort of funny if you're looking for a how-to, if you're looking for a theory book, if either you're looking for a commentary book or a theory book, it kind of misses both mm -hmm. marks because it's, it's doing something that very few writings that I see around there doing, which is doing, through, through, doing theory through thinking about the present, mm. you know, because revolutionary tradition is full of a lot of babies in bathwater, right? And we're tr and a lot of the things that we need to that he's saying we need to pull out and maintain of from Leninism, from anarchism, from whatever, from Maoism, you know, all these different traditions that that are have been viable at ver various different points. The the thing that really needs to be preserved is going to come out from applying those things to the situation you're in mm. and saying, what does the situation call for? Well, the situation is going to call for leadership in a certain way. You know, the situation is going to call for um, a willingness to break not only existing um, uh, capital institutions, but sometimes break our own institutions because they're not actually fitting the moment. Um, and uh, the, 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 really difficult thing that unfortunately I think we all do need to do that Don I think is so good at is take those theoretical questions and push them forward through our actual experience of the actual world. Yeah. And he, he makes the point in the, uh, essay, it's like, uh, like reflections on Marxism or something from 2011. It's like, you know, if you're just an academic Marxist and you're just interested in like the ideas of Marx and debating other people's ideas of Marx, then this is not going to be relevant to you. We're, we're talking about people who actually do stuff and want to, you know, 
measure uh, measure how relevant Marx's ideas are based on how you enact them in the world. So that's, I mean, that's what this book is, is constantly, um, you know, looking at these theories and how they play out, uh, and, you know, vi- and vice versa, like how the street action plays out with what we're thinking about it before and after. Um, and I think uh, probably maybe the most recent example of that is recent thoughts on insurrectionism from October 2021, which is in dialogue with a couple of things that we've talked about on the show. One is um, this idea from... Uh, so a lot of this is, was takes place on email list, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. The so, original one was called Talking Heads, <laughs> and then now it's called Flailing Arms. Oh, I can't believe in this. in the course of this, he was in dialogue with the Cosima organization and Mike mm-hmm. Eli, because I remember those people very well. They were a breakaway from the uh, Vakian RCP, yeah. who started their own little like neo-Maoist journal, and we used to dialogue back and forth with them, too. So... Uh, a lot of other things, it's like a time capsule of like, yeah. you know, what was it like to be a radical in 2008 or nine, which I remember very well. <laughs> well <laughs> and and I was getting yelled at by Mark Eli online. <laughs> it's funny, Andy, you called that history earlier. And I think that, unfortunately, that is true. The last things that happened in 2008 are history. Um, but it's a history that's a little bit too close to kind of feel like history. And so there's still people around doing organizing who remembered and lived it. and But we're many years now on from it. And the younger generation that's coming up and starting to do stuff, they, they're not getting those stories. Right. You know, they don't know what BTR was or necessarily what happened in Occupy. And there's important lessons that yeah, need I mean, to get in, handed in off. In 2020, like the kids on the street, they might know about Ferguson, and uh, <laughs> but they might not, you know. Yeah. Right. But yeah. they, they were right. going, you know, crazier than the kids in Ferguson. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but the, the lessons that, like, you know, there, there, had, there wasn't, like, a ton of right. There's an essay on Ferguson in here. And there's been um, a lot of writings on that from like a revolutionary perspective, but we're talking about like high school kids throwing down the street. You know, th- those lessons um, kind of need to be you know threaded along by mm-hmm. nerds like us who yeah, like but are really interested in reading books in the lulls. I mean, really, there needs to be an STO, right? I mean, that's the thing. So STO, Sojourner Truth, is born out of what discontent with uh, the CPUSA. Is that right? Okay. It was. The, it was. Yeah. Um, STO was founded by Don and Noel and other other people, um, and uh, uh, it was it's to some extent the founding document is this piece called um, uh, "Towards a Revolutionary Party," which uh, Don was a primary author for. Uh, that really talked about the idea of you know it's not just we don't need to go form a party; it's that we need to make the kinds of interventions where that it's going to be possible for a party to emerge, mm. um, which was a very spicy take in 1969. Mm. And now platypus is all over the place with that. I mean, no, I'm just <laughs> platypus, platypus believes in doing a psychoanalysis of the left, uh, <laughs> and I don't think that Don is particularly interested in doing well, a psychoanalysis good. of the left. Well, we'll have Chris Cutrone on at some point to discuss. You know, I have a I, I took my first class on Marx from Chris Cutrone. Oh, you did? Uh huh. Smart guy. Huh? Uh, he, I mean, he, I guess he's smart. Yeah. yeah. This is Mark. But you prefer Don Hammerquist. I do prefer Don Hammerquist <laughs> to Platypus. I, do, I, I feel like I've had to shed a lot of my early political lessons and yeah. all the you contacts and a I have lot with of Platypus. <laughs> d- definition of praxis is much different than uh, <laughs> I. I, I, uh, I can never forget going to an Iraq war, anti-Iraq war demonstration with the plat- and right next to the Platypus block, and they had this enormous banner. Just they had like, a block. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, well, it wasn't, like, it wasn't a black block, but plat, they were plat block, plat block. Yeah, I, was, great. I didn't even know they ever went out to the streets. Oh, they, yeah, they were. They, this was when they were like going to intervene in the anti-war anti-war movement, oh, shit. and they had this big giant banner they had spent all this time making with a Horkheimer quote on it. <laughs> <laughs> and That's my, sick. I think, pretty sure the quote said. Um, uh, the most necessary task for the left is a Marxist clarification of the concept of freedom. <laughs> Sean and I are no one, none to judge doing no, stupid no, shit like no. that. We were doing the same thing in 2008. We were doing the same shit. If not stupider. At least it's very funny. Friends <laughs> demanding at like giant, you know, mass meetings that somebody opens the revolutionary vortex and lets us in. You know, I've been there, man. We all have to pass through that phase. I don't know. That... <laughs> I wasn't in the plat block. I will say that I was not in the plat block. Well, you say that now, man. This is your revolutionary her- heritage, comrade. Right, right, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm sure. Uh, Talk about babes Horkheimer, with bathwater. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Horkheimer still pulls your heartstrings. I'm sure sometimes. Just to just to go back to your comment about STO. Uh, so right, like coming out of the anti-globalization stuff, you have well, you had love and rage that came out of um, what was around what, in the 90s? And then coming out of that, you had Bring the Ruckus, Unity and Struggle, and Advance the Struggle, right? That in were, May 1st, Anarchist Alliance. In May 1st, Anarchist Alliance, yeah, right. who were all sort of um, national... I don't know that May 1st identified as a cadre organi- organization. Sure. But um, the other three did identify as cadre organizations, right? And, like, especially, I think, um, Bring the Ruckus, we really uh, saw our lineage as STO. And... Um, Man, we went down in flames as an organization, mm. right? Like, and part of that is, I think, something that Don talks about, right? Is that like we can't build an organization that's forever, mm. right? We have to build an organization that's for the moment. And actually, our goal should be, in some ways, to break that organization and build something else. Mm. And I think uh, there was a moment in Portland when we were like, Occupy happened, and we were like, What do we do? And Don was like, You intervene. You like go be a part of this movement and like maybe that means you're not in this organization anymore nationally, mm. you know, like there's a other stuff that was happening in that organization too, um, which is like really super complicated, right? Humans are humans. Humans have were, issues. Were you part of, um, because this is a, it's pretty easy for people to like disregard Occupy and say it was a bunch of like uh, students or like whatever, marginally employed people. But there was that beautiful moment, which we might remember the um, in Oakland with right. with the port shutdown. Right. Yeah. Uh, so we, so I was a part of. So bring the ruckus, and some other folks around us. Rose City Cop Watch. Um, some folks actually from J with J. Folks from um, Iraqi Iraq Veterans Against the War. Mm. We kind of all got together and created a crew called mm. Hella Five Hundred Three. Um, which is a horrible name, yeah. but uh, it was it of came the from, time, right? It came Hella from the big. chant "Hella Hella Occupy," mm-hmm. and then 503 is the from the Oakland commune. Listen, yeah, if, from if the if Oakland one, commune. If man. one thing came from Occupy <laughs> and our comrades out on the West Coast, as we all started like started using the word "hella," <laughs> know, even right? here in New York City, you'd say "hella" all of a sudden, yeah. you know. So we um, kind of came together and created what I would call a crew at first. Um, there's probably like 50 of us or so in that in that space. And we were definitely um, inspired by, but also in conversation with folks in Oakland because we had, BTR had a, a local in Oakland as well who was involved with Occupy there. And, um, you know, so there was a lot of interchange between us, people going back and forth. So like I can remember um, 
there was a moment where folks had been down in Oakland and seen Oakland folks build these hard banners and mm. came back and were like, we need fucking hard banners. That's what we need. And so we were like building these hard banners, um, which was like really an important way. Cause we have, uh, for a long time, Portland had, um, cops on horses like they would get really close to get ridding the cops on horses and this one guy would donate the a hundred thousand dollars they needed to like keep the uh, cops on horses God. and like cops on horses are a very different thing um we had them during the iraq war protests yeah so here. you know I, I remember yeah they were um, going up and down the lines and people were getting tossed over and it was yeah. just another day for the cops yeah so uh hard banners are really great against cops on horses because horses don't like to go through walls ends up horses like have there's one of the things is like if they think that something is like a wall they're like not gonna push against it um i mean it was also good for just breaking cops lines right like you can just like really shove hard forward these are all tactical things but mm. anyways it was like a that thing. did not work so well in new york by the way yeah but. probably not it worked really great in portland until it didn't right because then mm, the cops yeah. were like oh hey you guys got hard banners cool we're gonna collect all of those mm. now now you're not gonna have mm-hmm. them or they would yeah. like pepper spray you over them was a whole thing um but so yeah we were in conversation and then we when the call went out we started organizing the Port blockade in portland and then in conjunction with unity and struggle and black orchid folks in seattle so we were like the three major things. And then this was sort of when Longview was also mm. happening. Right. And so we kind of tied some of that into the, the port shutdown, but that was a really interesting moment for us. And, um, you know, we were like having conversations with Don about like, how do we do this? Or like, you know, Don would always hate cause we'd be like, what do we do? And he'd be like, I'm not going to tell you what to do. Like figure <laughs> the fuck out on your own. <laughs> like I'll talk to you about what your ideas are and then tell you why they're wrong. Um, <laughs> He was trying to get you to think as yeah. strategic political yeah. actors. Yeah, he wanted us to do the thinking ourselves, which is something I really appreciated. Um, and so, I mean, yeah, we were in the mix of all that stuff. Um, you know, and then, like, you know, we were successful. We, like, shut the port down for a day. I mean, I remember I was actually <laughs> I was actually doing my student teaching. So I went at 4 o'clock in the morning and shut down the port and then drove to a suburb of the city and taught high school kids mm-hmm. and then drove back <laughs> and went and blockaded the port. Uh, but, it, I mean, exhausting. it was... It was a really powerful moment, right? Like there was like sounds powerful. It was there was like thousands of people that came out to do that, and like the port is not in an accessible part of Portland. Like you have to like really choose to go there. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and the meetings leading up to that were really amazing too, because like there was like a couple hundreds of people going to these public meetings to talk about doing this and like doing all the work. We had people who got like porta potties there and got people, you know, the whole setup. I mean, the thing that was an advantage for us was like there was still a lot of infrastructure around from the anti-globalization movement. So people like knew how to get legal observers, people, you know, all of that, like food, not bombs, Mm. like all of that sort of stuff. I I want to talk a lot more about uh, street fighting and that kind of thing in the fun half. So we can talk a little bit more freely. Um, Mm. So Mm. maybe we can just cap it off. I want to ask this more theoretical question from the book. And by the way, I should have mentioned this on the top, but if you're listening to this on Wednesday, June 21st, Mm. today we're releasing it. Uh, and you live in the New York area, uh, you can see uh, our guest today uh, reading and talking about the book at the Word is Changed bookstore in Bedside, which is a really great bookstore. You've not been there yet. No, no we not. haven't. It's, it's a perfect venue for this. Um, check out that bookstore if you can't make it tomorrow, but if you can make it tomorrow, please do. Friend of the show, John Garvey, oh, will be there yeah. as hosting it. Oh, um, yeah. I 
don't think I can make it, unfortunately. I have to hang out with my dad tomorrow. I've got movie um, tickets. Well, we should probably cut that out so people will come expecting to see us. Yeah, that's exactly right. <laughs> yeah. We'll be there. Yeah. See you there. We'll say uh, the part where you say whether you're going to be there or not is in the paid section. <laughs> yeah. Oh, now we're on the... Uh, we'll send our uh, impersonators to like do autographs. Yeah. My, our body doubles. You can you give know. us your cardboard cutouts. <laughs> exactly. The, we'll bring the them. threats to Andy and I as revolutionary figures means we have to, like Saddam Hussein, have body doubles. We can record a video <laughs> like, hey, everyone. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. uh, so, I send my body doubles to work every day. It's great. <laughs> you mind putting an eight today, man? I want to stay at home. Uh, but I, so this is something Dave Randy gets into in the introduction is that uh, Don's writing from a place of um, that's sort of different from the, uh, the way a lot of revolutionaries are thinking today, which is that we can't really build a, like a party to destroy right. capitalism mm-hmm. and create a new world. Like we have to like sort of, allow capitalism to dig its own grave and collapse and then we can try to sort of prepare for that and survive it and build something as it collapses that might be a little bit how sean and i are thinking these days Mm. although it took me a while to get there Mm. but don um and and all this writing seems pretty intent that there there does need to be this mass counterforce to develop Mm -hmm. and to destroy capitalism capitalism's not going to destroy itself that's seems to be what he's thinking uh, how do you feel about that theory? You still do you still hold that that's that's how we need to be approaching it? Uh, yes, I do personally hold that, uh, and I think that's part of why I felt very strongly that this book needs to be out there because mm. I think that position has become increasingly a minority on the left, or it's become held by people who are uh, even more distasteful than some of my enemies. Uh, and um, I mean, I think that the that the challenge for us, the book is really about speaking to people who identify as revolutionaries who want a revolution and then saying, what should we do? And if that's really our framework, you know, if I'm a revolutionary, I do have to be spending as much time as I can feasibly spend trying to make a a liberatory revolution happen. And that's really got to be my goal. And so if I don't think that there's anything that I can do, then what does it mean to be a revolutionary? Mm -hmm. There's a bit of a sort of categorical problem here. Mm -hmm. On a practical level, I mean, I think that... um, uh, there has to be something consolidating and building in a specific direction out of these pretty episodic movements that we're seeing over and over again. You know, nothing organically is going to emerge. And I think that may just that may be an article of faith, but I do just think it's practically true. I mean, since since 2020, you know, in Portland, it will, will get, get in this path to paywall, but um, in 2020. Uh, we saw a level of militancy that I've never seen in my life and I think has been pretty uncommon in the last 50 years in North America. And in the last three years, that didn't really go anywhere. And I, and I, and I don't know how, what practice, I'm not going to necessarily give practical like what we should have done on you know August 14th or whatever, but um, I think the truth is that there wasn't a politics of building, taking that moment and using it to build a counter social force mm-hmm. that actually had a specific direction and a specific drive and its own self-identity. Um, there was a lot of like, oh, this is the moment and we're just going to take the moment. Um, and I think if there had been more uh, effort made to try to build something consolidated and try to build something that actually... Um, could take the moment, momentum and run with it in a new direction, um, even if it was had to go small for a little while, um, I think we'd be in a different place. Certainly we've seen how our class enemies uh, in the Democratic Party and the NGO complex 
managed to leverage uh, that sort of social activity into something very, very pernicious and very much against liberation. So yeah. on that on that token, I think uh, we all agree. I, I want to add that, I mean, yeah, for me, the, I don't think ever in my politics, really, I thought that capitalism would wither away um, without us confronting it. I think especially right now that um, I, I really worry about like a far right fascism being the other viable option right now. Uh, that's the force that's pushing. And I think we have to fucking fight that force. I mean, I'm a non-binary person and we're about to move to Texas. Oh boy. And uh, yeah, I mean, I'm watching all this shit from a distance and like uh, the school I work at, we have over 10% of our students who are trans and non-binary in Portland. Right. And so like, that's because we have fought really hard in our space to provide that space for kids. And, and this is not like a, a, a magnet school. This is not like no, a private school. No, this is a like yeah. normal ass mm. school in a like predominantly black and Latino neighborhood. Right. Or not anymore, but like the school is predominantly black and Latino and low income. I just right? mentioned that because there's this, yeah. there's yeah, this idea about perception Portland, yeah. that, yeah. that tra- Portland and then also that like trans and queer is this like bourgeois decadent mm. thing. Right. Mm-hmm. It's not. I mean, it's and a working like, class thing. It, absolutely. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's coming out of like just kids expression of themselves. Right. And, and I think, you know, watching what's happening in state houses with the far right and them feeling like there is nothing holding them back from extermination of a group of people like why the fuck do they we think that they're not going to exterminate us too Mm. you know what i mean like it's not like they're going to be like we're done with trans people now we're done it's like no done with trans but now you know like who's next after that right like desantis said he's gonna pass a law to keep like socialists and communists out of florida whatever the fuck that means yeah how you do that he's gonna have to fight this yeah they're gonna fight (laughs) the maoists that are in the in the Everglades. swamp Maoists. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, that's a callback right there. <laughs> but I, I mean, so to me, I think that like, you know, we have to be an, an organized force that is fighting together with people, right? Like, and I don't think it can be like that we're isolated. I think we have to be with other working people together as a force. And uh, I think that's the only way we also don't end up with right right-wing fascism right now because mm-hmm. i i mean right like for me it's not that like capitalism is going to wither away to me right like capitalism is in crisis like that's really clear i think anybody that's looking at anything and like you can read this in don's writing he's been writing about this a lot on the email list that's not in the book but that like he's like secular crisis like capitalism is like really trying to figure out how it moves forward as capitalism. What that means, right, is that there's like opportunities. There are moments when things start really breaking down and there's these vacuums of power in those moments. And like, who steps into that? And like, I'm not sure it's us. (laughs) I think it should be. And I, I want it to be right. Like, but right now the right is really fucking organized. I mean, the January 6th stuff has seemed to have some impact on like some of the more organized groups like Proud Boys and whatnot, the three percenters, but I'm not convinced that's going to last. Like every marginal political movement going back 200 and something years or so in this country, some some faction, some some like leftovers from that end up getting integrated into the party structure, and we're seeing that happen in the Republican Party. Right. Let's go to the uh, bonus, and we'll talk a bunch more about this on the other side of the paywall where we can talk more street fighting, we can talk more 
fascist threat, we can talk more overthrow of capitalist social relations. What do you think, Andy? Yep. Patreon.com slash the Antifada. You can sign up for $5 a month or for the whole year for a discount. Um, and we really hope you do that. And we'll talk on the other side of the paywall. See you on the other side. Thank you.